Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode one of Impact Boom. My name's Tom Allen. I'm the director of Seven Positive and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today we're speaking with Steve Williams, Queensland Social Innovation Manager at Marist 180. Steve's one of the strong leaders in the Queensland social enterprise scene. In June 2012, Steve co-founded the Queensland Social Enterprise Council, QSEC, and he has an array of awards for his work in social enterprise, including the One to Watch Award at the National Social Enterprise Awards in 2016, for which Steve was part of the team. Steve's currently developing a suite of innovation and entrepreneurship programs aimed at enabling Queenslanders experiencing disadvantage to take part in the exciting innovation startup space. So on today's podcast, we'll discuss Steve's journey in leading a variety of social enterprises and the lessons he's learned along the way. We'll get Steve's advice about getting projects funded alongside some policy changes he believes would be beneficial for the social enterprise sector. And we'll hear some great insights and tips from Steve about social innovation. Steve, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for inviting me. No worries at all. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, to start things off, Steve, could you please share a little bit about your background and what led you down the path of social enterprise? Yeah, I, I guess that I've got uh, a couple of um, streams to my employment history or my background. So I've, uh, when I left, I left school at 15 and uh, I didn't really have um, any qualifications or uh, much uh much going for me at that stage in terms of you know employment futures. So mm. I, um, after a couple of years, I signed up as an apprentice painter and I became a painter and I did that for quite a few years and I was self-employed and was this in England or Australia? Yeah, this was in the UK. Yeah, um, it was actually under um, Thatcher's youth training scheme. So, so I was yeah. getting paid a quarter of the rates of my mates uh, <laughs> while I was doing that apprenticeship. But yep. it gave me a great start and a trade in life. And then a bit later on in life, I went and did a, um, a social policy degree mm. because I was all, always interested in politics and uh, I was interested in how we could use policy to positively affect people's lives. Mm. Yeah. And, and out of that, I, uh, my first real jobs out of uni were in community development. Yep. So working at grassroots levels, um, uh, particularly on a, uh, a council housing estate in the UK, doing mm. community development work there. Wow. Mm. And within the Australian sector, when did you get involved with that? And, um, and, and what's that journey been like since coming here? So I emigrated, I think, around the year 2000. And my first job in Australia was working in service delivery, uh, working in the homelessness sector in Logan. So that was a baptism of fire. Yeah, challenging role. It, it was a challenging role, and you know the the people 
in Logan were really doing it tough and it was really interesting to see uh, the different levels of poverty and how they f affect people in two different countries, mm. in the UK and then in Australia. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Very interesting. And so in your role at Marast 180 now, mm. what projects are you working on and what are you involved in? So I've been here just on a year. Yep. And we've really been concentrating on uh, entrepreneurship and innovation work. So we're really interested in creating... Um, diversity and equity opportunities for people who wouldn't normally think that they could run their own business mm. or start up their own business. Yep. So we came to that by really looking at what was available uh, for those groups of people. So people who uh, might have a mental illness, people who might be uh, young people experiencing disadvantage, people from a refugee background or Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. And we thought, how do those people take part in the current innovation boom. Mm. So a year ago there was lots and lots of noise coming out of Canberra, yep. uh, Brisbane City Council, uh, State Government, Advanced Queensland, etc, etc. There's lots and lots of money being pumped into the system, but we thought, where's the equity piece? Yeah. Where are those people that we work with? Where are they going to get involved? At what stage? So we thought we could develop a series of programmes and projects that would enable them to start with us mm. um, and then as they develop their skills and develop businesses we could spin them out into mainstream co-working spaces, innovation places if that's appropriate for them and that's what they want to do. Excellent. Yeah. So that's, that's one of the main things I've been working on and um, leading on from that we're actually in January 2017 we'll be starting Brisbane's first innovation co-working space Fantastic. specifically for people experiencing disadvantage. Tell us more about that innovation space. Yeah, so really it's come out of the, obviously the background of the work that we're doing and realising and recognising with the people that we've worked with that we can teach them how to start their own business. Mm -hmm. We can start them on their pathway to you know maybe get a Cert 3 or Cert 4 with an RTO, a a registered training organisation or with TAFE. Yep. We can help them with that education piece, but they need an incubation space. They need somewhere that they can come and have an office space, somewhere they can work from and get extra links. So how, um, you know, can they be linked to mentors, to coaches, yep. business advisors, um, uh, take part in mainstream kind of workshops as well, um, us link them to as I said, mainstream co-working spaces. So that's how that really came about. And we've, um, some of the people that have gone through our business workshops up, coming up to the end of this year have already indicated that they'd be interested in taking a place yep. at the hub. Um, and also some social enterprises that I know from my previous work in social enterprises have indicated that they'd like to rent office space there. So we're also thinking that there's a great opportunity to become a social enterprise hub too. Mm, fantastic. Mm. And so being involved in that social enterprise scene, especially within Brisbane, um, over that sort of last five years, mm. how have you seen that social enterprise sector change and mm. where do you see it heading into the future? Um, I think the main changes that I've seen over the last five years has really been um, in the general public's awareness of social enterprise. So there's, you know, the narrative is out there. You know, people seem to understand what social enterprise is and what it means. 
they understand social business terms and it's from people like it's really I think it's not just from people who have been in the sector for a long time like me it's from uh, the other end of the spectrum it's from millennials who are coming up and starting their own businesses that have a social imperative but also from those amazingly successful young people like the thank you group so you know lots of people know Dan Flynn and uh, his friends and his wife who started thank you that's got great national coverage there's Simon Griffiths who gives a crap Um, and although they're not a social enterprise Orange Sky Laundry have really brought attention to how to address social problems with innovative thinking and ultimately I think that that's what social enterprise does absolutely I think um, Orange Sky Laundry a great example of of a couple of young men um, who really just pushed forward with an idea. Mm. Uh, from my understanding, both were studying at UQ. In fact, um, we did a little bit of work with them uh, through a QT course that I was teaching in last year. And they were both very inspirational guys, but they really just pushed forward with that. Yeah. And there's certainly some really, really great results. Yeah, we're actually going to be doing some more work, or we're going to be doing some work with them this uh, next year. Yep. So you were asking earlier about what some of the stuff what some of the stuff I've been doing this year and we've um, actually developed a couple of great hackathon events which will be happening in January 2017 so the first one is um, Tech Fugees which is a refugee hackathon Sounds great. which came out of the UK as a response to the Syrian refugee crisis um, and has been taking up across the world and so there's been events happening in Melbourne and Sydney but Marist 180 has brought it to uh, Queensland um, in partnership with MDA yep um, in partnership with QUT, uh, with a whole host of um, other humanitarian organisations uh, and also with River City Labs who are the tech lead on that piece of work. And then the piece of work, the, the hackathon that we're doing with Orange Sky Laundry is around a, a homelessness hackathon. Um, we think it's the first one in Australia. We've had a look at overseas examples and yep. we're, we're in contact with their, with their organisers to get, you know, understand what worked well and what didn't work well over there so there's been a couple in the states there's been one in the uk and they've got some good results but what we've done is we've we've we're bringing a design thinking lens to uh the hackathon uh and we're partnering with qt jazz joy at qt to help us design um some frameworks where we engage orange sky laundry volunteers to be able to have a, a tool set that they can go out and engage people experiencing homelessness yep. and get feedback uh, that we will feed in via the hackathon and importantly obviously we want people who are currently experiencing homelessness or have previously experienced homelessness mm. to be present at the event to help us drive it. it sounds like a really great initiative it's a fantastic thing and that um, particular hackathon um, has been supported by the Queensland government through the Dignity First Fund. So, Excellent. Yeah, we've got to give thanks to those guys. Good. I'll certainly leave a link to that Great. On, on the page. Yeah. Coming into funding, if someone was out there, perhaps like the Orange Sky guys were um, a few years ago, they had a good idea in mind, they wanted to get it out there, what advice would you give to that sort of person um, who's looking to get some sort of sustainable funding for their initiative in order to make it viable, make it a reality. And have you seen any changes in the way that social enterprises tap into different revenue streams? Mm. I think there's three different levels of funding that's required. 
and there has been changes over the last few years for sure so I think that um, and I'll just talk about the gaps first so I think that there's a real gap in startup funding mm. I really think that the federal government and state governments should be creating a massive pool of funding for startups yep. which have social outcomes or social aims yep. so social enterprises or social businesses or co-ops yep. um, uh, there is a huge gap at that bottom end of the market mm. that entry level stuff so that people can um, test ideas yep. um, you know um, pivot, try new ideas, um, and keep moving forward. I've seen lots and lots of, uh, over the last few years, millennials come through, great ideas. They just haven't had the money to get them over the line or even to kind of put some of that design thinking through those business ideas because that's costly in terms of time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, one of the changes that has happened is the obviously the crowdfunding boom. So a lot of those young people are going out and they're getting raising $10,000 or $5,000 on one of the crowdfunding platforms, which is great. That's an enormous amount of work, in mm. my opinion, to get there. Yep. Um, and I think sometimes it, it's... It, for me, sometimes it's a little bit counterproductive to go down that route. And then there's also things like... Um, What's that? I, I think... Um, I think it's about effort in, effort out. Mm -hmm. And and I think that sometimes people are crowdfunding at a stage when they haven't properly developed the prototypes. So they're asking for money and pitching what would seem to be uh, a business that's ready to go, but it's actually not ready to go. Sure. And it needed some capital before to help it, um, you know, go through some rapid prototype processes. Mm. But then there's also things like the funding network, you know, where you can go and pitch yep. um, for philanthropists to um, put in some money. That's at the, at the smaller end of the scale. And then I think that there's a there's that middle piece, which is around the kind of fifty to a hundred thousand dollar mark. Yep. People like Ian Potter Foundation are fantastic at this. Um, Westpac Foundation as well. Yep. But there's actually not many of them. There's not mm. many places that specifically fund social enterprises and are prepared to take that risk. Yeah, yep. and, and the issue is in the sector is that and nationally is that it's a very very competitive market. It's so competitive to get a hundred thousand dollar pot. Um, th that that for me is one of the biggest issues. And then you get a hundred thousand dollars and you don't get it next year. Mm. And sometimes businesses, social enterprises, as they're scaling. They need a few dips in the twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollar mark just to get them going over the first three to five years into yep. sustainability. And then there's that kind of scaling fund right at the other end, which um, NAB and Westpac are doing really well. Um, and then there's also a whole load of different kind of financial instruments that are out at the moment: the social enterprise development funds. Yep. You know, there's uh, impact bonds. There's yep. you know, there, there's um, uh, you know, particular uh, finance funds, and 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 I've noticed that people are developing, um, you know, their own kind of capital funds that are you know five seven million dollar funds that people yeah. can draw on, yeah. and you know, and and for that you give you might give away a bit of equity. It's certainly not free money, mm. and that's great. That's great because you need all three levels. I think so. You need that start up, you need the middle, and then you need the higher end. Sure. Okay. Great. Great perspective. So, I mean, you mentioned a little bit about policy perhaps now in terms of funding. Looking at social enterprise from that 
policy perspective, what do you believe needs to be done by government to help foster that and, and support that innovative social enterprise sector? Yeah, so the first thing is, uh, you know, we just mentioned funding. Yeah. As I said, I think there needs to be a huge pool of funding where people can um, access start-up funds and then that middle tier of funds because I think that the top end's probably worked out. Sure. Um, but then I think that the second thing is... Um, in order for the sector to move forward, there needs to be a marketplace. And the marketplace in this sector, I believe, should, is driven by social procurement. So mm-hmm. that simply means that um, when people make procurement decisions, so they might be buying um, stationery, for example, they could buy it from XYZ suppliers and just purchase stationery. Or they could buy it from somebody like Lauren Shuttleworth at Words With Heart, and every time they buy some stationery, they're also purchasing girls' education in a developing country. Sure. That's social procurement. So we really need great social procurement policies that are embedded throughout all levels of government. So yep. Brisbane City Council, um, local council level, state government level, federal government level. Mm. And yet, th- there are great, great examples of procurement, social procurement happening now. Sure. Brisbane City Council was recently awarded the... Um, the, the Social Buy Award at the National Social Enterprise Awards. And that was really driven by... Uh, a, one of the people that drove that was a, a woman called Novette de Bono, who's a category specialist manager. Mm-hmm. She's got a passion for social procurement. Yep. She makes sure that um, whenever there's pieces of procurement going out, she thinks, how can we put a social lens through this? How can we quarantine mm-hmm. off portions of it? So yep. that it's of a sizable chunk that social enterprises can take on. So I think in the old days there was a much more scattergun approach where um, social enterprises were expected to just apply for any tender, any open tender, um, which of course you can do because you're a business and that's great and that's good. But there does need to be um, some special considerations for social enterprises, Mm -hmm. I think, and that's often about the scale of the contract, the length of the contract, and some negotiations around price because there's a real misconception that social enterprises are more expensive. Off, more often than not, I think that that's around social enterprises being naive in the way they price. Mm. So if there's an open dialogue with the purchaser about expected amounts, yep. uh, it makes it much easier for everybody to win, the, the procurement officer and the social enterprise. Yeah, very interesting perspective. And talking about that that social enterprise ecosystem, if you like, when you co-founded QSEC with, with Amelia Salmon, what was the aim of the council then and and what work is the council doing now to fulfil those aims? So, um, so the, the Queensland Social Enterprise Council really morphed out of a group called the New Mutualism Group, which was meeting around in the early 2000s, maybe 2001, something like that. Yep. It was formed by Ingrid Burkett, who many people will know listens to this, who are listening to this podcast, and Dave Langdon, who formed the Nunder Co-op. Uh, he formed the, the cafe at the Nunder Co-op. Yep. Um, and they really formed that new mutualism group because they were interested in this kind of new area that didn't even really have a language back then. Mm. This was 15 years ago. Yeah. People are calling it community enterprise. Some people are calling it social enterprise. But it was really formed, that group was formed around the notions of mutualism and reciprocity. It was formed around the notion of relationships Mm. and the way that we relate to each other. And it was definitely formed 
uh, out of a community development perspective. Uh, over the years, we that acted as a fantastic peer support group and some book, booklets, really great booklets, which are still in circulation were written at mm. that point around social procurement, so going back all the time. Yep. But myself and Amelia recognised that actually what we needed to do is form a peak body for social enterprise and, and that became QSEC. Uh, and, and it still is Australia's only peak body for social enterprise. Mm. And we did that because we had an understanding of power and we wanted social enterprises and practitioners and social entrepreneurs to hold some power in the sector. Because at that time, there was no representative voice and although intermediaries were doing fantastic work, they were speaking on behalf of people who were going out and mowing lawns and cleaning toilets yeah. and doing dishes and making sandwiches. Yeah. And yet they'd never done that themselves. So we wanted to bring that real voice into mm. the sector. And we wanted to lobby for things that we knew would be useful for the sector. Mm. And that particularly was around recognition it was around um, procurement. And I think that we definitely have achieved that. When you look at how far procurement has come, it's certainly not just QSEC on its own, it's people like Mark Daniels yep. um, and David Brooks from Social Traders have been two of the absolute leaders in this field in, in Australia. Yeah. Um, and also going on the back of the work of people like Joe Barraquette and, and the mm. Gaming Group Burkett. So it's been you know a real joint effort, but... I have seen huge leaps in, in the field of procurement in the last five years. Excellent. Yeah. Certainly some of those names you mentioned are people I'll, I'll certainly try to get on Impact Boom because that sounds like they've got a, a great yeah. opinion and uh, some, some strong insights to yes. give us. Yeah, Excellent. sure. That would be great to hear from them. So in terms of other countries, I mean, we've heard about Australia, QSEC perhaps being the only peak body. Are there any other places in the world or initiatives that you believe are really leading the charge when it comes to social enterprise? And is there anything that we can learn from them? I'm not really sure. I, um, I think that, you know, I, and, and I'm certainly not saying this because I'm from the UK, but the UK has um, long been uh, at the forefront of social enterprise development, yep. I think, in my opinion. And, and you know, they had a social enterprise minister. Mm. Um, they've got great peak. Yep. Um, social Enterprise UK, School for Social Entrepreneurs came out of the UK. Did, you know, um, so they really have been at the forefront, and they've done lots of testing around market recognition of social enterprise, and and it's um it's way out there. Kind of, mm. You know, most people know in the UK understand the term social enterprise. Um, again, there seems to have been lots of great policy decisions um, through all levels of government that have driven that. There's a really great example from the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow. Their social procurement policy was absolutely fantastic. Mm. I think it was Social Traders brought out some people from Glasgow to talk about that. Um, and we tried to embed that in the Commonwealth Games uh, for the Gold Coast. And I must admit, I've lost track a little bit of that process yep. because um, I'd stepped down as the chair of QSEC um, and QSEC were driving that. So I'm not quite sure where that's at. But We've, we've definitely looked there, but, but for me personally, I'm really looking at the work I'm doing at the moment around innovation and entrepreneurship. I've been really looking at the states 
and what the states do around disadvantaged communities and communities of colour. Mm. They really um, have concentrated efforts by using community organisers and, and community development theories and strategies to develop things like co-working spaces in quite poor neighbourhoods and they've been getting some quite stunning results. Excellent. So I'm, I'm actually uh, looking at going over there so I can have a little tour and and see what they're doing and, and bring back some of those kind of successful strategies to the Australian context. Excellent. Very good. So in terms of those strategies and planning those strategies, mm. are there any specific tools, um, business design tools, that have proven to be really invaluable to you um, in the development and daily running of, of these sorts of projects? Yeah, well, I use the Business Model Canvas all the time. Yep. Um, I use it. Uh, I use Ingrid Burkett's version, which is the social business model canvas, which mm. is available online. Um, and I also use Program Logic. And so, so I used, I, I learned the business model canvas at um, when I did the School for Social Entrepreneurs. So yep. I was a, a graduate from there. Um, and Program Logic, I learned that when I I got some funding from the Westpac Foundation in my old role at Seed. And um, I actually struggled with that for a while because. It didn't really suit my kind of loose thinking, sure. um, but it's really helped me tighten up that thinking. Yeah. And again, I use that regularly. I even use that in funding applications that don't require it. I mm. still use it because I, I find that not only the BMC, but also the, the program logic process just helps me tighten up my thinking. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. You just mentioned seed. Um, and seed being um, somewhere where you worked in the past. In fact, in that role, as director at Sandbag Inc, you led Seed PPN to becoming that social small Australian Social Enterprise of the Year in 2014. So, what is Seed PPN, and and what sort of impact does it make? Yeah. So, Seed the PPM stands for Parks and Property Maintenance. So, yep. Seed was formed um, by Sandbag, which is a local community organisation, which is renowned for doing great community development work, one of the kind of last bastions mm. of working grassroots with people rather than for people. And, you know, taking that kind of participatory approach to working rather than a service delivery a passive approach. Yep. So over um over the course of probably um ten to fifteen years they'd had these little small iterations of community enterprises and I actually first joined that organisation in 2004 as a community development worker. Hmm. Half of my role was to run the community enterprise as it was then called and there was a small catering enterprise and a small cleaning enterprise and it was run along community development lines so there was consensus decision making frameworks embedded yeah. in the business uh, people were having profit shares. It was a it was a great great model. Um, terrible to run a business. Uh, it was very difficult to run a business with consensus decision making frameworks. Sure. It, the structure was super flat, but it was a great process. And, and I think that the people there, you know, really gained a lot during that time. Not only in terms of earning money, but also from going on and, and gaining employment or, or doing whatever. Yeah. In the future. Um, I left that role between 2004-2007 to run my own businesses and I ran a couple of small businesses in Brisbane. And then I went back in, in 2007, uh, sorry, in 2010 yeah. 
got those dates a bit muddled. I'm sorry, I got, went back in 2010 to run what had become Seed Parks and Property Maintenance, and, and it held uh, one contract from Brisbane City Council, a fine example of social procurement, mm-hmm. um, it was worth $50,000 a year. And over the next um, five years that I worked there, we grew it to about $500,000 a year turnover. Wow. And during that time, we employed, um, we employed. I know these numbers off the top of my head because Pull them I, out, Steve. because Pull I, them I because I've pinned them on my board, my little social impact chart. So we employed sixty-seven people. Yep. Seventy percent of whom came from a disadvantaged background in mm. some way. Um, we paid seven hundred and eighty thousand dollars in wages to people who were doing it tough. Yep. Uh, creating thirty-two and a half thousand hours of employment mm. and over that time we earn we were on our way to earn two and a half million dollars it's an impressive effort yeah it's great and and what was really great about that is um there was no scale imperative so kind of what frustrates me sometimes in the social enterprise sector is that you get lots of people from the corporate sector um coming in often working in intermediaries wanting to give back and do great work, which mm. they, which undoubtedly they do. But they often bring a scaling imperative. So sure. they, they think that um, you know every business must scale to achieve sustainability and to you know, uh, you know, increase its impact tenfold, a hundredfold, a thousandfold. Sure. But for Sandbag, you know, all that they needed to do was have their social enterprise not cost them anything to run and maybe to contribute a bit back into sure. the coffers. But as long as it was creating employment for the people that it was designed to create employment for, i.e. people who used to hang out at the community centre and had cycled through employment and unemployment, employment and unemployment, that was okay. Mm. And I think that, that for me, that's my favourite kind of model of yeah. social enterprise. Small, local, deep roots in the community, yep. deep impact a place where people can work for years and years and years and they're not cycled on to something else. Sure. So a great example is the Nunda Co-op. They have the same principles that I just spoke about of sandbag. They are cooperative. They employ people with disabilities. They've got guys there who um, have got 10 years service up. They've got a long service leave. Wow. It's not a kind of bring people in, train them, spit them out yep. somewhere else model. It's a very deep and impactful model of working, a way of working with people. And an example from um, when we worked at Seed was we created employment for um, a woman with an intellectual disability who hadn't worked since 1994. Wow. So when we employed her in, I think, probably 2015 now, um, you know, she'd had, what's that, 20 years of yeah. unemployment. Yeah. Um, and... But she had had a relationship with that organisation, Sandbag, for 10 years. Mm. And it almost took her 10 years to build up the confidence, to build up yeah. the, um, the relationship with the organisation, to feel safe. Mm. That if she, in her eyes, failed, it was okay. She yeah. could come back. If she got something wrong, it's okay. She can come back. We yeah. can train her. And actually, over the period of a year or so, she probably resigned three or four times but kept coming back because she felt safe. She felt that the relationship was there. Again, I used the word deep. It was a deep-rooted relationship. She lived in the same community that the community centre was housed in. 
she knew all the people, a lot of the staff there live in that same community. Yeah. Uh, and I just saw her a couple of weeks ago um, and she's still working. She's proud that she's working. Um, she's got a bounce and energy about her that she didn't have before. Excellent. So for me, that's what social enterprise is about. Very nice. So working in Seed, working at Marist 180, working in, in different areas, what have you learned about collaboration and what do you believe are the fundamental ingredients necessary basically to generate that collaborative culture especially in, in today's work environment I think um, uh, honesty and openness um, honesty and openness I think are the key to any relationships and uh, you know I go back to relationships relationships are the key to collaboration mm. You know, you often hear this term trotted out in business, and so we can extrapolate that to social enterprise, that you must go to a meeting with an ask. You must never leave a meeting without um, having an ask, yeah. ask somebody for something. Or that you must go somewhere, and if you're discussing a business idea, you must couch it in terms of a pitch. Yeah. And I just don't believe that. I just think that um, business should be built and collaboration should be built on mutually beneficial relationships. Mm. And you know, sometimes the benefit for somebody when you're having a coffee meeting with them is that they come away feeling that they've contributed to your cause simply sure. by giving you a piece of advice. Yeah. Yep. You don't need to ask people for something all of the time. And mm. again, I think that, that that comes from a kind of standardised business approach of... I must pitch all the time, I must have an elevator pitch, mm. I must ask for something. Um, I think that the world is a little bit more complex than that and human beings are more complex. Sure. And I think also w within an organisation, um, the collaboration comes from that level of respect for all levels of people within an organisation. So whether that's a big organisation or a small organisation, and I do acknowledge that Organisations mostly need hierarchy, whether that's a business or a um, or a not-for-profit organisations. But we need to think about how communications can uh, communication across the organisation can be as flat as possible. Mm. That for me is really important. So everybody has a say, everybody has an input, and everybody feels valued. Sure, it's a great insight. Good. And so, I mean, we've spoken about uh, helping those uh, with who are experiencing a disadvantage. Are there any particular um, environmental or social problems in Australia, um, including that or beyond that, that you believe need to be urgently tackled with perhaps new social enterprise initiatives? Mm. I think, um, you know, I think that um, disability is really interesting at the moment. Um, and, and I'm not just saying that because because I'm jumping on the NDIS bandwagon because mm. I think that... Um, Everybody is jumping on the NDIS bang wagon, and maybe that's helped me stimulate my thoughts. But I haven't actually—that—that's not the reason that I'm saying this. But I'm—I've started to look at some of the statistics, and I, I'm sorry I can't quote them now because I don't um, have them to hand. But there's some really scary statistics around unemployment rates and participant participation rates mm -hmm. for people with disabilities, especially young people wow. leaving school. And I think. Why can't we help them start 
their own businesses? Why can't we help them on a journey of entrepreneurialism mm. and self-employment? You know, somebody said to me the other day who had been who had worked in the disability sector for a long time. He said to me, um, "What makes you think that people with disability can have their own business?" Which, after I'd picked myself up from the floor, yeah. from, uh, my reply was, "Well, because I don't limit people." Mm. Um, what makes him think that people can't have their own business? Absolutely. So, a great example uh, recently. Um, a, a guy came on some of our business building workshops, which we call We Can Be Heroes, uh, which I should acknowledge were funded by Advanced Queensland um, through the Queensland State Government. Um, so Chris came on a, um, on a We Can Be Heroes workshop. Chris has spinal bifida and an acquired brain injury. Mm. He has a business partner also called Chris, and they have a business together called Chris and Chris's Fish Tank Cleaning Business. <laughs> And they go out and clean people's fish tanks in their local area of Bow Desert. Mm. And for me, that is a beautiful example of um, self-development, people taking rain, the reins themselves, yeah. taking their own initiative and just getting out and doing something. Mm. And I just think that that is quite amazing. We've had other people come through with disabilities. We, we've had a young man come through who um, is in the autism spectrum. He's experienced... Um, the disability sector through his own disability and he wants to start up his own disability support service mm. using the NDIS as um, as a vehicle to do that wow. so we've been supporting him along that process so that that again is a fantastic idea Absolutely. and there's another uh, young woman that, or, or a young woman that came on one of the courses who has bipolar she um, can be quite unwell but mm. she has a a craft business and she just wanted to come and tighten up some of her ideas and get a bit of a better understanding about business basics because for her, not only is craft a way for her to earn money, but it's also a self-care technique and it's vitally important to her quality of life. Mm. So those guys have really, Chris, Chris, Bryson and, uh, and Eloise have really inspired me to... Mm. Um, Think about how we can work with people with disabilities. Absolutely. There, there's certainly some inspiring projects. Mm. Speaking of inspiring projects, just on a, on a beeline now, are there, are there any other initiatives like this that you've come across recently which are really creating some, some great positive social change? Yeah, so I really love um, Substation 33, mm. which is in Logan. Yep. A lot of people know that because they've got quite a good um, profile. So like Tony Sharp. Tony Sharp, yeah. And Tony's another um, SSE graduate. He oh, was right. in my cohort. Um, so Substation 33 is um, an environmentally friendly electronic waste recycler. Mm -hmm. And it works with the local community in Logan to, um, to gather electronic waste, but then train up people in the community who have been long-term unemployed or disengaged from school or are attending special education mm -hmm. units at school. They train them up in um, disassembling electronic waste and then reassembling it and they make their own 3D printers. Mm. Uh, they just do incredible stuff. And, um, you know, Tony is one of those people um, that is super, super practical. Uh, he had a vision. Yeah. Uh, he set himself a task and he saw that vision through and um, this year he was uh, a nominee or he was a finalist in Social Enterprise Hero mm. Award. So um, 
Yeah, that's a great business. Some of the other businesses that I love are Food Connect because you know they've been around a long time and Robert Pekin and Emma Kate Rose for me are, are real heroes in, um, in Australia really mm. for the way that they approach business and the way that they think about different structures um, of businesses. You know, Robert is always thinking about how uh, how he can tweak the model, how he can make it more inclusive, how he can make it flatter, how he can mm. um, make more of an impact with Australian farmers. You know, yeah, it's yeah. just it's just fascinating to watch their development. And, you know, another one I've mentioned them before, but, you know, the Nunda Co-op are yeah. just incredible. The, mm. the work that they do is amazing. And, again, it's about taking that developmental approach with people and the way that they work with people. Absolutely. Some very inspiring initiatives. To wrap up, Steve, if there were three books that you could recommend to our listeners, what would they be? Well, uh, I, I did have a little think about this because you asked me this the other day and I thought, I, look, I don't know because I, I read all the time, right? Mm. So I just I couldn't really pick um, three favourites. So I'm just going to tell you... It's a hard you, question. It's a hard <laughs> question. So I'm going to tell you what I'm going to be reading over Christmas. Yep. So the first one is um, Design a Better Business, which I've just bought, and that's mm. a design thinking for business. Lots yep. of great tools in there. Another one is um, Buddhism Without Belief, which is a Stephen mm. Batchelor book. Uh-huh. Um, I just highly recommend that to anybody. That's for your spirituality. Yep. And, um, and The Magic Pudding is the third, because uh, you, know, you need a little bit of light relief when you're reading some heavy stuff. That's and uh, The Magic Pudding, the language in The Magic Pudding is amazing. I, I love it. I've read it 10 times, and uh, mm. I'm going to go back to it over Christmas. Great. Steve, there's been some really good insights today. Thanks so much for your generous time, and, and insights have been really great. Great. Thank you. Thanks so much for asking me to take part. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.